Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. So far in our study of the seven churches that the Spirit speaks to, we have seen different responses uh, that believers have to the Lord, both individually and collectively. And we've been going through this to hear the words of the Spirit of God to the church and to believers um, about what we should be doing in response to the grace of God. Now, um, in each of these cities, we've seen stress and pressure on Christians um, to live for Christ in the middle of a lot of moral decline within the culture at that time, as well as, in some cases, challenges and even threats on their lives um, to, to compromise their biblical conviction and to live in a way um, that was morally compromised against what Scripture tells us. So very similar and very relevant to what we're dealing with today in terms of the moral decline of culture, in terms of some of the pressure that's been increasing uh, on Christians to yield. Um, and I don't know if you felt that. I hope you have. It's not a good thing, but I hope we're aware of it, that the constant pressure from our culture is to yield what we believe while they become more fully entrenched in what they believe. So we as believers have to make a decision. Are we going to yield to that? Are we going to back down? Or are we going to be more on fire and more convicted for the Lord? Now, in a lot of these churches that we've looked at in Revelation 2, they fail to stand for the Lord. And we've kind of gone through the list, Ephesus being indifferent and, and passionless. Pergamum was compromised in their doctrine. Thyatira was permissive and morally unfaithful. Two weeks ago, we looked at Sardis. They were hypocritical because they said they were alive, but they really were spiritually lifeless. There's only one church we've looked at so far, Smyrna, the second church that, that didn't get any kind of criticism from the Lord. They, they just were affirmed, but they were faithful as they endured difficulty and they were really facing a lot of persecution and testing. Now we get to the sixth church, the church in Philadelphia, uh, which is special for me because I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, but this is the sixth church, and it's the only church uh, where it really just gets a glowing review from the Lord. The only church where God just really says, everything about you is good. Now, remember, each of these churches symbolically represents a time frame in history. So from 96 A.D. up until right now, uh, these churches cover time frames of historical um, record. And the last two churches we're going to look at, Philadelphia today and then Laodicea in two weeks, um, th these last two churches represent this age. From about 75 years ago, scholars think, from about 75 to 100 years ago, up until the time that the Lord returns, these two churches, Philadelphia and Laodicea, are a picture of what the church will be. Now, Philadelphia, just for a, a background, represents all the faithful believers who are committed to the cause of Christ, who are fulfilling the Great Commission, who are empowered by the Holy Spirit and blessed by the Lord because of their faith and their faithfulness. Laodicea, which we know about because it's the, the vomit verse, right? You know, you're, you're not hot or cold, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew out of my mouth. Laodicea represents people, listen now, who claim to be Christians but are somehow indifferent about their faith and who live straddling the fence between worldliness and some sort of spiritual commitment. So Philadelphia is the on-fire, spirit-filled, 
Great Commission, Acts 2 believers, and Laodicea is everybody else. And I want you to realize there are only two options. There are only two options. Either on fire, in love with the Lord, serving Christ, fulfilling the Great Commission, living for Him, trusting Him, everything about Jesus, or not. And because God only gives us two options, we have to realize that as believers, as a church, we're either completely faithful to the Lord or we're half-hearted. That's it. We're either completely faithful to the Lord or we're half-hearted and we're double-minded. Now, the fact that we're studying these two churches on either side of Resurrection Sunday, which I didn't initially plan because I didn't know I was going away, the fact that, that these are placed here really adds a greater emphasis on the stark difference of our reaction to what Christ has done. This week, we're going to celebrate Friday night, Jesus going to the cross. It's going to be sobering. We're going to praise the Lord for his grace. We're going to celebrate communion. It's going to be a meaningful service where we remember the sacrifice of Christ. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to gather and we're going to praise the Lord like we never have as a church. This week, of all weeks, we should be aware of the death and resurrection of Christ. So as we look at the two responses, either so overwhelmed, so on fire, so in love with the Lord because of what he's done, or kind of, eh, yeah, yeah, as far as, as far as it makes me comfortable, I can live with that. It's really going to show us how we should react. Either you and I are overwhelmed by the grace of God and transformed by his mercy and so completely grateful for his forgiveness. And as Annie just sang so beautifully, completely surrendered to him with all of our lives forever, which is the only response. Or. Our lives are kind of impacted by the cross and kind of impacted by the tomb, but we're not really changed. We like the thought of salvation, but only as far as it doesn't require a lot of us. Now, I don't really have an idea because I'm not God what God does with the latter group. We'll look at some possibilities in a few weeks. But hear what Jesus says. If you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who's in heaven. But if you will not confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father in heaven. If you're not willing to give me everything, if you're not willing to love me more than anything, his words, you're not worthy to be my disciples. Now, as we look at Philadelphia this week and Laodicea in two weeks, those verses should sober us. Those verses should stir our hearts. This morning, let's look at the church that should characterize every believer, the church that should characterize every church that proclaims the name of Christ. These are qualities that Jesus not only commends, but I want you to see as we finish this morning that he secures promises around now and forever. Okay, church in Philadelphia, Revelation chapter three, look at verse seven. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. 
because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who, do not, who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is a complex text that we could study for weeks. But before we do that and try to understand it this morning, let's establish a little background, very little, on the city of Philadelphia. It was not a prominent city. It was not a terribly wealthy city. It was in a valley along a major highway. It was kind of a melting pot of Greek and Roman culture, Greek and Roman religion. Uh, there was no real restriction on religion. It was kind of an everything goes place. So there were a lot of different temples, a lot of different worship centers in Philadelphia, and everybody kind of did their own thing. The area was known for its grapes. It was known for its wine. So there was that influence. And it was also known for being destroyed several times throughout the years by earthquakes. And then they had to rebuild it each time. Now, that's just little incidental details. Let's get into the spiritual climate of Philadelphia, because in contrast to some of the other cities we looked at, the Christians in Philadelphia were not threatened. They weren't persecuted. They weren't under great stress. But that was true just of the secular people in the city. The Jews in the city were putting great pressure on them. Usually it was the pressure from what we call the world, people who don't know Christ, people who reject Christ, people who hate Christ. That's, that's the world. That's those that, that have taken us on and said, you can't believe what you believe, or you're stupid to believe what you believe. That was not the pressure in Philadelphia. Everybody just did their own thing. The pressure in Philadelphia was from the Jews, and you see this in verse 9. The Jews in the city, he calls, the Spirit calls the synagogue of Satan. That's a pretty strong designation, right? Because the Jews in Philadelphia claimed that they were the true people of God simply because of their national heritage. They had rejected Jesus. They didn't see Jesus as the true Messiah. They thought simply being Jews, simply being from the line of David and, and kind of having a little brand of Judaism, that was enough. And, and because they were feeling that, they looked at the people who believed in Jesus Christ. They looked at the church in Philadelphia and they said, you're wrong. You're worthless. What you believe is completely wrong. We're the chosen people. We're the ones who are right. We're the ones that have a relationship with God, and you're a bunch of frauds. So the Spirit clears it up. He says, look back at verse 7. Jesus fulfilled the line of David, and now he has David's key. Not to an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem, but to a heavenly kingdom that is eternal. And the Spirit says, Jesus says to you, the door of that kingdom is never closed. He has opened it up. Now you say, well, that's lovely historical information. Why does it matter to me on a Sunday in April 
in 2017? Well, a couple reasons. One is the fact that we are strengthened and encouraged by this truth that through Christ, listen now, he has opened the door of salvation. We have a Savior who has delivered us, forgiven us, exonerated us, released us, and secured us as his own. And now by opening up the veil, remember when Jesus dies, the veil opens up in the temple. Now he says you have full and complete rights and access to the presence of God and to the throne of grace. Somebody say amen. amen. Never take that fact for granted, Paul Rhodes. Never take that fact for granted, church, that now because of Christ, we're not hindered, we're not blocked. In the Old Testament, the high priest would have to go in with fear and trembling, with a rope around his ankle, to make atonement for everybody. And the people stood out the side, hoping it worked. Now Jesus says, I ripped it open. You walk right into my throne of grace and receive forgiveness. I'm here. Oh, praise the Lord for that. The other reason we want to recognize this is that it tells us that every other option for salvation falls short of what Christ has done. Our efforts, our, our hope that without Christ that we can somehow get there, any reliance we have on race or background or social status or, or anything else is pathetically inadequate. Pathetically inadequate. We don't have a prayer, no pun intended. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians should be arrogant or that we should be entitled or we should be condescending. Well, I have Jesus and you don't. That's not how it works. You know why I'm saved? Because of the grace of God. I'm saved because of Jesus Christ. I'm saved because of nothing on my own because I was short and I was failure and I was completely condemned and all I deserve is hell. And Jesus said, nope, I'm going to step in. The sad fact is that those who have rejected Jesus because of their pride and their sin and because of buying the devil's lie that they don't need God, the, the sad thing is they're usually the ones who are smug and critical. And instead of being offended by that, because sometimes I think we are, we need to be stirred and be more zealous to share the love and mercy of God that's changed us. We need to go and tell people, look, you don't have to live the way you're living. You don't have to be in difficulty and crisis all the time and be depressed and discouraged and be overwhelmed by all that's going on in your life because God changes lives and Jesus died with your sins and he rose again. And I want you to come to church with me this week because we're going to celebrate what God's done and you can know that. Every tongue is going to confess one day. And we should want that chorus to be full of as many people as we can get to who know Jesus Christ. Now, that being said, the Spirit specifically, look at the text, specifically addresses the believers in Philadelphia about this conflict with the Jews. And he is also commending them for being faithful within that culture. So now the message kind of transfers to Christians throughout the centuries, including us this morning, because so much of the teaching in what we've done, so much of what the Spirit's telling us in chapters 2 and 3 is about being faithful during difficult circumstances. 
We see these believers in these churches fighting for their convictions and sometimes even their lives. And since this book, remember Revelation, what we know Revelation for, it's the prophecy of the end times. It's the revelation of what is going to happen. Now that we see those prophecies coming true, now that we look around us at our age and we realize everything that's written in this book is either happened or it could happen at any moment because the world is completely ready to fulfill what's read in Revelation. Now that we read that, it should absolutely stir us to stand firm and to stand strong and to fight even harder for our faith. It's a gross understatement to say that the world is hostile toward Christianity this morning. The world is hostile toward Jesus. The world is hostile to evangelical churches this morning. And listen, with the advance of Islam and the advance of strident liberalism that's going on almost unchecked, it is essential that we as believers and we as a church take the stance that Philadelphia took. So I want to just take a couple minutes this morning, I'll try to be brief, to look at the four characteristics of this church that Jesus lists. There are four positions that the believers in Philadelphia took that impacted those around them and secured very powerful promises from the Lord. And I pray as we study these this morning that the Spirit will really speak to us. I mean, really inspire us now to be fervent that this should describe us. This should describe Paul Rhodes this morning. This should describe Harbor Rock Tabernacle this morning. This should describe every person that loves the Lord this morning, that we will be strong in them individually and strong in them as a church. This church is not like Laodicea. Philadelphia is not lazy and lukewarm and indifferent and kind of, eh, whatever goes. They are committed. They're not tepid. They're not half-hearted. They are sold out for the Lord. And as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection of Christ next Sunday, I think this is the impetus for us now to really say, this is who I want to be, and this is who I'm going to be. Because how many know there's no other option than to love and serve God with all our hearts based on what he's done? There is no other option as individuals and as a church. So, four characteristics. Write them down. I encourage you. Four characteristics. Number one, we must, we must be people and a church that walks toward every opportunity to reach people. We must be people and a church that walks toward every opportunity to reach people. I've said before, back in the winter, that I believe the Lord has given the church especially in America, a fresh opening to be assertive and a fresh opening to take back some of the ground that has been lost. But that open door will not last forever, and we need to take advantage of it instead of being complacent. Supreme Court, I don't want to get political. Let me just say this. Supreme Court is just one, o one example. Over the next four years, they are estimating that as many as two to four justices could be replaced. And the ones who are the oldest, because the Supreme Court's older than it's ever been, the ones who are the oldest are the ones who have supported abortion, supported gay marriage, supported restricted freedom for Christians, restored, uh, supported other things that contradict Scripture. And if their replacements are anything like the justice that just went on the bench, 
it will change for generations. But we can't just rely on that happening with the Supreme Court. We have to stand up. And the fact that over the last 25 to 30 years, we have this amazing ability to understand what's happening in the world and to be educated on anything. We were sitting in our car driving through the south, and I kind of looked around. Everybody's on their phones, and I'm thinking, how amazing is it that you can look up something as you're sitting in the car in Georgia on a little device? You can find any piece of information in the world just by tapping. We have the ability to take trips internationally to go to foreign countries and to support missions. We have the opportunity to spread the gospel through technology. We have the opportunity to worship with people of all races and all nationalities, whereas 50 years ago, that was kind of weird. We have the opportunity to see the Lord open the door for growth and for maturity and for ministry, but we have to go after it with everything we have. We can't say, well, technology is great. Now we can reach the world and then do nothing. Or, or we have the opportunity to spread the gospel, but, but we're going to kind of sit back. We have to be open, listen now, to everything the Lord brings into our lives and everyone he brings into this church. He is placing us. This hit me so hard last night. He is placing us in an area where I believe is the greatest mix within 50 miles, the greatest mix of social and economic status. One mile away, there are mansions. One mile away, there is middle class. One mile away, there are people who are poor and struggling. There's white, black, Asian, Hispanic. There are all levels of education. There are all levels of religious belief. There is problems like alcohol and drug abuse, very present in this area, and we're right in the center of it. And I honestly cannot think of another area, Racine, Kenosha, Oak Creek, Union Grove, that is like what is within two miles of this church. And God put us here. Now, we can sit here and say, well, we've got nice worship services and our children's ministry is wonderful. Our youth are seeing a movie this week and we're going to play softball. And isn't it great? What a friendly church. Or we can say the fields are white. We got to get out there. Is this an exciting open door for ministry? Yes, it is. Is this an opportunity and an open door for people who need Christ in their lives to be told by us? Yes, it is. I've told you about the little church I pastored near Charlotte that was closed to visitors that did not want anybody coming because those people had grown up together. They all got baptized in the creek. Literally, I'm not joking. They all got baptized in the creek. They all knew each other. They, they honestly, I'm going to say this, they were, they were narrow-minded. They were racist. And when we talked about reaching people across the street, reaching the neighbor, they didn't want to do that. When somebody new walked in, they shunned them. Then I told you about a church we visited in Charlotte last summer where every 10th seat, it was a different color. And I interpreted that as that's for a visitor. That's for somebody that needs Christ. I want to be the second church. I want to be the church that says we are bringing in people to tell them about the gospel. We are bringing in people to make disciples. We are bringing in people so that they will grow in their faith. See, it's a complete difference of passion and philosophy 
and purpose. And I want Harbor Rock Tabernacle, God willing, Lord, help us to be a church that reaches so many people for Christ. And they're all around us. God is giving us a fresh opportunity. Look at it, an open door for ministry. Now, to do that well, we need the second trait of Philadelphia. We must be a people and a church with spiritual power. We must be a people and a church with spiritual power. Jesus says, I put before you an open door in part because you have a little power. The fact that there was power, that it was present, meant they were walking by the Spirit. But the power wasn't full. So the Lord says, I'm going to give you more power so you can continue to minister in the opportunities that I'm giving you. It is so vital for us as believers and as a church to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That means we have to put off whatever we know, and we know the list, whatever weakens us, and we have to put on whatever strengthens us and matures us and causes us to thrive and be close to the Lord. And that strength is necessary because we're going to be under attack constantly and because we're going to feel discouraged at times. But listen, when you're spiritually strong and you're spiritually mature, it helps your faith not to slip and it prevents your walk from sliding back and, and going back this way. That spiritual strength builds your confidence and it builds your hope and it builds your endurance. And there's an important spiritual connection. There's a, there's a spiritual principle here between the open door and the power because when the church lives the way it should, when believers live the way that they should, that's when God says, I'm going to fill you with power and then I'm going to open up that door so you can go through it and you can fulfill what I'm calling you to do. So you fulfill the conditions that I've set before you, and I'll fill you with my spirit. I'll fill you with my power, and then you're going to see opportunity, 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 opportunity. Now we can't even recognize the opportunities if we're weak because we're not spiritually astute. Wisdom comes from the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord comes from walking with the Lord. If we're not walking with the Lord, there are going to be people that walk up to us that the Spirit is saying, you need to tell that person about Christ. But we're so blinded by our own sin, we can't even recognize it. Primary condition that we need to be able to walk through those open doors is to be living in the power of the Holy Spirit where our faith expects the Lord to work and it senses when he's about to do something significant, where love and grace fill us so we're not put off by somebody in need. We don't reject them because they're different from us. We embrace them because we want to serve them and help them, where we seize the opportunity to, to serve the Lord rather than saying, well, somebody else will do that job. Where we love to pray and we love to praise and we love... To, to testify instead of being insecure. Listen, Jesus said, I'm leaving, but it's going to be better for you because I'm sending my spirit. The spirit of the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. That's what the Bible says. I'm going to send back my spirit. I'm not going to be here in body, but my spirit is going to fill you. And what's the one thing in Acts 1.8 that Jesus says the spirit will give us? Tell me. It's going to give us power. Come on, you should know that verse. Everybody memorize Acts 1-8. There's a test next week. 
you shall receive, tell me, power after the Holy Spirit is come. And then what does he say? And you will then be my witnesses. You're not going to be a witness if you don't have the power of God in your life. You'll shy away. You'll be insecure. You'll be scared. You'll say, I don't know enough. All kinds of excuses. But when you have the power of God, you can't be stopped. So the one qualification we need is power. And listen, that power is promised by Jesus. It's promised for his children. It's promised for his church. But it will only be unleashed when we surrender to the Spirit in these last two ways. Look at the last two traits. Number three, we must be a people and a church that faithfully keeps the word. This has been since day one, November 28, 2010. This has been our primary priority at this church and it always will be. It is bedrock to us. In fact, part of the reason for the name Harbor Rock is the rock is based on Jesus who is the rock. And Jesus is also what? The word of God. So this church will always be based on the word of God. If someday the Lord calls me away, you better hire another pastor who believes that. Or I'm going to come back and get you. The rock, the word, Jesus it will never change because as soon as that slips, anything goes. As soon as this book is not priority one, it's all up for grabs. The word has to be planted in our hearts and in the center of the church's mission and ministry. And it is and it always will be. And it has to be in the middle of what we do to reach people for Christ. We are going to continue to preach and teach it without compromise. We are going to continue to study it and know it well. Everyone. No one's exempt. You know, back in the 40s, there was a church in suburban Philadelphia that formed because the pastor and others were shut out of a prayer meeting. You know why they were shut out of the prayer meeting? Because they defended the word of God. And they said, we're not willing to be part of a compromise about the word. So they formed a body together. And when it came time to name the church, the pastor, Miles McPherson, my dad knew him because he grew up in Philly. The pastor, Miles McPherson, had just preached this text. And you know what the church called itself? The Church of the Open Door. The Church of the Open Door. Wherever a church stands faithfully, for the word of God, God will bless it. And he will open up doors of opportunity for the people of that church to make a significant a spiritual impact. So church, not just as a church, we're going to stand for the word of God. As individual believers who make up this church, we're going to stand for the word of God. This is not just some ministry philosophy we hope comes true. We're going to live this out. And then the last quality is that we must be a people and a church that is bold and uncompromising in standing for the Lord. We must be a people and a church that is bold and uncompromising in standing for the Lord. Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, you have not denied my name. Usually when we think about that kind of sentence, we think about persecution. Like if somebody 
held a gun to your head and said, deny Christ, that that, that would be the key moment. But I want to bring this down to our lives right now. There are so many ways that we can overtly and subtly deny Christ in our daily life. Habitual sin. Habitual sin denies the truth of God's transforming power. It says that we love our old life more than we love our new life. Lack of zeal denies the presence of the Holy Spirit. It suggests that there's no joy, there's no passion when you know the Lord. It's just kind of same old, same old. Selfishness and pride, that denies self-sacrifice. It says, I can still live for myself and still be blessed by God. I can praise the Lord with one breath and then curse with the other. James says, how can that be? A fountain doesn't spew out salt water and sweet water at the same time. Lack of faith that denies the confidence that comes from knowing the promises of God. It denies living under the Spirit's control. Lack of prayer denies that it's a privilege to go to the throne of grace. It suggests I don't believe God will act or I don't need him to act. Lack of verbal testimony denies Christ's command to go and tell. It says we either don't believe the gospel or we really don't care that anybody knows it or we're embarrassed by it. Bold, uncompromising. God gives us an open door. He says, be filled with my power. Be strong in the word. And then go out and stand for me. And look at what happens when we do this. Let's finish. There are three great promises that he says, I will give to those who faithfully live this way. We're just going to take 30 seconds on each. Number one, verse 10. He promises that we will be delivered out of testing and trouble. Specifically, he's talking about what the rest of the book talks about, the tribulation, when the world will be punished for rejecting Christ and Israel will be disciplined before being restored. What we see now, that horrific scene in Stockholm, that is a drop in the bucket to what's going to happen. It will be horrific. It will be on a scale that people can't fathom. The distress and the bloodshed and the death and the awfulness is beyond our understanding. But he says, if you're a faithful believer, I will deliver you out of that. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says, he will take up his people before that happens. If we're faithful. Second promise, verse 12. He promises that those who are faithful and overcome will have their names memorialized. Can you imagine this? He says there will be a pillar in the temple of God. It'll be a symbol of strength and permanence, and you'll be that pillar. Your name will be on it. The church of God is held up by those who are faithful and mature to teach and to serve and to give. They become pillars of the church on which the church's strength rests. So we as believers now, we as a church in this city, in Racine, Wisconsin, in this area, southeast Wisconsin, we need to be one of the pillars. 
There are other churches that love the Lord, that preach the gospel, that worship Him in spirit and truth. Praise the Lord for them. We're not in competition with them. They're partners in the gospel. And we all need to be pillars set throughout the city that declare the Lord. He says, when you live for me and you labor for me, I will secure you and I'll give you strength. You'll be one of the pillars. And then 30 promises in verse 12, I'll give you three new names. I'll give you the name of God. I'll give you the name of my city. And I'll give you my new name. See, God doesn't just say, I'm going to save you. Now give me your life and I own you and, and you're mine and you're going to do what I say and you get nothing out of it. You're lucky I redeemed you. That's not how God works. That's not how Jesus talks. You're hopeless and I'm burdened and I have compassion for you like the crowds that Jesus saw wandering around Galilee. I have compassion for you. So Jesus comes not in arrogance not riding a stallion, not saying, look at me. He comes as the humble Savior, the sacrificial lamb who doesn't say a word, and they pin him to the cross with my sin. And he dies, and he takes those sins into the grave. And then he says, sin's not going to defeat me. It's not going to defeat you either. And in showing us his mercy, I'm done. He doesn't treat us like slaves, which he could. He says, you're my children. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to help you. And I'm going to give you power. And I'm going to give you my word. And I'm going to give you my spirit. And I'm going to give you doors of opportunity. And if you're faithful to me, listen, don't be distracted. If you're faithful to me, I will deliver you from trouble. I'll memorialize your name, and I'll give you my name. Praise the Lord. I don't deserve that, do you? This is the grace of God. Church, this week, we may see the finalization of God leading us and giving us a new open door, and we better take it. We better not sit back and go, it's about time. Now we can relax. Nope, the work is just getting started. And we're going to get to it. And we're going to be the church in Philadelphia. And God's going to bless us.